Good morning, church. Our scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 2, and it is verses 1 through 8, and it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? This is the word of God. Good morning, church. Thank you, Josiah, for reading that this morning. Uh, if you're new with us today, uh, my name's Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of uh, Inclement Weather. Yeah, I, pre- I preached last year on Snowvid weekend. It was Josh and I in here uh, videotaping that message. And then, again, so Brandon's afraid of the cold. Yeah, he likes to say he's traveling, he's on a retreat, you know, he, pastors use that thing, but he was wanting to come here, he's supposed to preach this morning, Carissa had him all bundled up, had his scarf on, little mittens that she'd knit for him this week, and was trying to get him out the door, and he just couldn't do it. You know those Bears fans, they're just afraid of the cold. So she calls me at 6.30 this morning and says, Chad, I can't get Brandon out the door, can you, can you preach this morning? I said, I was ready, I figured it would happen, so here I am, you got me. I love that. I, I put that on video in the earlier service, so it's there forever for Brandon to love you, Brandon. Sorry, church. <laughs> this is why he doesn't let me up here very often. I'm actually the pastor of discipleship. If you're new with us, uh, we would love to help you get connected. That's my role here, uh, and helping you get connected into a smaller community where you can be known and know others as well. So contact me. You can get a hold of me through the website. Uh, But today I'm going to be preaching to you from Acts chapter 2. We're in the midst of a series titled Build Your Church, and Brandon started this series last week in Acts 1 and looking at Jesus' ascension and his last words with his disciples, and now we're going to look at this incredibly significant event uh, called Pentecost where there's lots of misunderstandings about it, but I'm hoping to give you a, a real key overview of what this is about and why it's so important. So if you bow your heads with me, let's pray, uh, and then we're going to jump in. You can follow along with us, like I said, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. You can also see them up on the screen as we go through it. Father, we are thankful uh, to be gathered together today. And Lord, if we're honest, we frequently take this gathering uh, for granted. Uh, We forget how vital it is, how important it is for us to be here together and the uniqueness of your presence and the encouragement that comes as we sing together, as we see uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as we hear your word proclaimed and we enjoy the gifts of your spirit. Uh, together as community. And so, Lord, my prayer is simply that you do what you intended this meeting to do, uh, that you open our hearts and our minds to the beauty of who you are, that you teach us about what you're doing, and, Lord, that we uh, are able to hear what you have called us to do and to be as your people 
um, as we leave here, Lord. We ask this all in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Sven and Oli were preparing for their annual fishing trip. Yeah, this is the other reason he doesn't let me up here very often. Sven and Oli uh, on their annual fishing trip, and, and this was a big one. It was their 20th anniversary as buddies where they've been doing this trip. So Sven just says, I'm going all out this year. And so he spends 50 grand on a pickup truck that he'd been wanting forever, 50 grand on a truck. He buys himself a brand new bass tracker boat for 40 grand. And then he says, I need the gear and everything to go along with this. So he spends about 10 more grand on all his new fishing gear for him and Ollie as they take off. And they head to Canada as they often do to do their annual trip. And, and they fish and it's just a horrible week for them. Like they just get totally shut out practically. And they're driving home, they have two fish two fish that they've caught on this trip. And they're just driving home kind of in silence. And Oli is kind of like thinking about it. He starts putting together in his head like what Sven has spent on this trip. He goes, man, like 50 grand for the truck, 40 for the boat, 10 for the gear. And we got two fish. So he turns to Sven and he goes, man, Sven, he said, this was like a, this is a rough trip. Like, do you realize you spent $100,000 on this trip and we caught two fish? He says, that means every fish, each fish cost us $50,000. And Sven's just quiet for a moment. He turns to Ollie and he says, I'm so glad we didn't catch any more fish. <laughs> Some of you will get that on your way to lunch. But, but there is a point to that. I wonder how much different the modern church has become from Sven and Ollie's fishing trip. Last week we, we saw in the opening passages of Acts, Jesus reiterating in a, in a new way the great commission that he'd given his church of going and making disciples. And he said to them, you will receive power. Go and wait, but you will receive power. And when you receive that power, you will be my witnesses. And I wonder, if we, if we think about it, how much time have you spent? How many resources have you spent on church ministries, on church buildings, on church activities that never result in witnessing to someone else who doesn't know about Jesus? It never result in making a new disciple. God has called us to be witnesses for him. He has called us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I gotta be honest, I love, love, love the new vision that we've adopted here at Austin Oaks Church. Part of which over the next several years into 2025 would, would mean we're challenging ourselves to see 500 new professions of faith 
from who we are at church, and, and 500 baptisms that go along with that, 1,800 people moving and, and pushed into healthy discipleship relationships where we are so focused on what it is that we've been called and empowered to do. Five churches planted in, through our partnership, African New Life in Rwanda. Church, that excites me. That jazzes me because that's what Jesus left us with with his final words, and that's what he empowered us to do. That was the command that we looked at last week. That was Jesus' words in his final moments. And today we're going to see, in a really powerful way, how God provided for what he commanded us to do. How he provided for what he commanded us to do. So three questions I want to answer that I think our text answers that'll help. So if you're that studious type, that's, you're going to see I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm more of a teacher than I'm a preacher. So first half of this message, you're going to see I'm going to do a lot of teaching. I'm going to help you understand what this passage is. But understand this. When I get towards the end of it, there's a good chance I'm going to be preaching. Okay? Because it leads to that. So get your notes out, get your hand, get whatever you want to do on your phone, jot these things down. Here's three questions. Really important you understand this about this passage. It's a very misunderstood passage. It's a misunderstood book in the New Testament. And you have to understand this to understand the whole book. So here's three things we need to see from this passage. What did God do? What did God do in this moment of Pentecost that we just read about? What did he do? Why did he do it like that? So what did God do? Why did he do it like that? And then the last question is for us to take it personally and say, hey, how do we need to respond to this then? How do we need to respond to what God has done? So what did God do? Why did he do it like that? And how do we respond? So what did he do? Josiah read about that in the first seven verses there of Acts chapter one. He says here, on the day of Pentecost, so Luke immediately tells us when this took place. So this was about 10 days after Jesus' last conversation with them where we left off in the previous chapter. Jesus had told them, go and wait. And this might be the first time in all the Bible that it's recorded that Jesus asks his disciples to do something and they actually listen to him. Like that there is a miracle in and of itself if you've read the Gospels. So they did that. They went back to Jerusalem and they waited. They were in this room. There's a handful of them. It was the main disciples. There's some other uh, moms and women were there with them. So they, they say maybe those 15 to 50 to maybe 100 of them were in this house waiting and they were praying and they were gathered together and they were spending this time together. Okay, they were waiting. as Jesus said, the spirit is going to come. Wait for power, this power to come. So that's what's happening. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now think about this. Jesus had been on earth for 33 years, and there's maybe 100 believers. It says all the believers are together in one place. And suddenly it says, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now keep this in mind, everyone present there. So this is just the group of believers that's present here. A whole other crowd is going to be attracted of, of over a thousand, several thousand people we'll see as we go through this in, in the later weeks. But right here, it's just this hundred maybe 
of people right here. Then what look, and so the Spirit fills all of them and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. It doesn't mean that everyone there did, but as the, the Spirit gave ability, some of them were speaking in other languages. And at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, so this is the other group, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So what did God do? First of all, he did this thing at Pentecost. Peter makes a note, excuse me, Luke makes a note of saying, this is on the day of Pentecost. Why is that important? This is fascinating, I think, and you, and you need to understand this. We as Gentiles often don't realize the powerful sovereignty of God and what he was doing and why he was doing it the way he did it. Jesus, if you know, when you celebrated the Lord's Supper, Jesus celebrated the last Passover, the night before the actual Passover, and then he was crucified on the Jewish Passover, which was the celebration of Passover when they were taken out of Egypt. Jesus took the place of that physical Passover celebration, and he revealed spiritually what God intended it to be through him as he set free us from the power of sin. Okay, so it happens on the Passover that had been this celebration for years. Now the next thing God is doing is the next major celebration of the Jews. Okay, they had three festivals every year that were traveling festivals. There was more festivals they celebrated, but three of them were key festivals that they were charged to travel from wherever they were at. If the Jews were dispersed out, they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate those festivals there. And Passover was one of them. The second one was Pentecost. So many of these Jews that had been here that we see gathering up, they, they, they traveled from thousands of miles away on foot or horseback or whatever they would have ridden back there, donkeys or camels, you know, whatever they rode. You're talking a month's journey to get there. So it wasn't smart for them to go back and then come back for Pentecost, so they just hung around. They stayed there that whole time because they knew something had happened at Passover. Now they were finding out. So here's all these Jews from all over that are here. And on Pentecost, which just means 50, because it was 50 days after the Passover, but the actual name of it, that was the Greek name, in the, but the actual name of the festival was the Festival of Harvest. So for the Israelites, it was the beginning of harvest. It was the beginning of harvest season. They were an agricultural community. And so that was the celebration that they had, that harvest was here. God had them celebrate that every year physically, but he was preparing them for the real harvest that was to come, just like Passover was preparing them for the real Passover. Are you with me on this? And what comes right on the day of Pentecost, on the day of full harvest, the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus say the Spirit was given to him for? So that they could be a witness. So they could be harvesters. Because that's what you do when the crops become ripe. 
And, and he, he symbolizes this in this. Anyone reading the Old Testament or reading it all sees the consistency. Wind is coming in, makes this noise. Wind was often used in the Old Testament to depict God and his movement. Jesus, if you remember in his famous conversation with, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he speaks of the spirit as being like the wind. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's used throughout the scriptures. The word for it is roch. It's that breath of God, just like we sung about. Jesus breathed on his disciples in John chapter 21 to give them the spirit. And so we see this image of wind here. We see this image of fire. But in the Old Testament, that fire was always one unit. Like we see it in, in Moses. When God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, he's symbolized by this fire. We see it throughout the Old Testament in the wilderness wanderings that a pillar of fire constantly depicts God leading them through the wilderness. He drops down into the temple as a pillar of fire, but it's a single unit of fire. But here we see something different happening. We see this fire come in and it breaks apart and it starts landing on each of the individual believers. God's presence is now dwelling in each of us, not simply in one place or on one representative. You see, in the Old Testament, that's often how it worked. The king might be anointed with the spirit. A prophet might be anointed with the spirit in a unique way. It wasn't an act of salvation. It was an act of anointing to carry out their task. But they could lose that spirit. Saul lost the spirit when he was disobedient in his kingship. He lost it. And immediately after that, you see that David then received that spirit so that he could lead the people. David prayed in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. He said, Lord, take not your spirit from me because he understood that the spirit's gifting and anointing in that time was conditional unlike what we're going to see here. Ezekiel 36 says this. Read this with me or follow along. Ezekiel 36, this is, is prophet Ezekiel talking about God saying this would happen. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Hundreds of years prior to this moment, God here, as well as several other places in the Bible, told his people, a day is coming when I'm going to give each of you my spirit. We're watching it happen. That's what was happening in Pentecost. Now, why did he do it like that? Why did he do that? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Let's, let's take a look. Verse 7 says, They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Listen to what Luke records here. He says, Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, 
Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. Like, what, what can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Now, do you understand what's going on here? Luke is recording from people that he obviously investigated from and found out about. The, the nations that are spoken of here in this passage, if you went back geographically and looked at those regions, it was the edges of all known humanity of that time. It went as far as Asia and India and Rome and Africa, every direction you went, these people were coming from those areas. The whole world, in a sense, was being represented and was here, and they're freaking out going, how are these people speaking in our own languages? Now, they're all Jews that were scattered, but they had integrated into those societies, they were speaking those languages, and now they're hearing these disciples in this redneck village of Galilee, that's where they were from, suddenly speaking in their own languages. Why would he do it like that? What was Jesus' sole command when he saw his disciples the last time we were in this story? He said, go and wait, and you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses both here in Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Pentecost is like a mini version fulfilling the very mission that God has given us as the church. He's showing us right here in this incredible miracle. There are Jews from every region of the world, every one of them hearing in their own language. You know, God is doing the same kind of work today. Like there are Californians flooding into Texas like crazy. I'm just kidding. No, there really are. God has called us to be witnesses, and we see here how he says it's to the ends of the world. He's taking them. He's fulfilling that here. And in the midst of this, God is, in a sense, pronouncing judgment on Israel and the spiritual leaders for their disobedience. Tongues are a sign to Israel that they were in judgment, that they had failed to fulfill their purpose of being a light to the Gentiles, and now they were in judgment. Most people misunderstand tongues, or they just don't look at this, and they they get all caught up or they don't see it in the greater picture. But part of what God is doing here is he's bringing a judgment that Jesus had talked about in Matthew 21, Matthew 22, Matthew 23, throughout the end of the Gospels where he's pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders of Jerusalem and on Israel as a whole because they'd rejected their Messiah and said, I'm moving on. But tongues was that sign of both salvation to the Gentiles but judgment to the Jews. You say, well, Chad, where do you get that? Why, why, why would you say that? Well, because Paul teaches us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 14. It says, it is written in the scriptures, 
This is quoting Paul, quoting Isaiah 28. You can look that up. It is written in the scriptures, I will speak to my own people through strange languages and through the lips of foreigners, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So you see, now this is Paul speaking about what that means. So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Tongues was a sign to unbelievers. It's a sign to unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. As long as foreign tongues are in their midst, they know they're being judged. And what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah chapter 28 was that very thing. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming uh, attacks of Assyria and Babylon coming in and taking over Israel. And God told him over and over again, when foreigners occupy your land, Israel, when they come in and exile you and they occupy your land and you're hearing people speaking in foreign tongues, it's a sign of my judgment on you. And you need to repent. So tongues is a sign of that, that they've been passed over and now the church has been commissioned with this mission that Israel dropped the ball on. We are in charge of taking that mission. That's why this is happening. You have received this power more than what Israel even received. They received the covenants and all those things. We've received God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And God was fulfilling his missional purpose through this spiritual promise. So how do we know this has really happened? How do we know that it's authentic? Like, couldn't someone just make up this story? I mean, it's written 2,000 years ago. I mean, Luke could have just jotted it down and said, hey, I'm going to pass this off as some spiritual story. Well, let's read it and see if it seems authentic. It says, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, saying, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk as some of you are assembling, or some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. That is funny, isn't it? I laugh at that every time I read. What I love about this is because he, Peter knew the kind of people, they were fishermen, man. They were, they, were, they were rough, a rough group these disciples were, and guaranteed some people probably saw them acting in that way until the Spirit changed them. Now, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, so he's, pro he's, he's speaking from the book of Joel now, Joel chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become darker. The moon will turn to blood red. And before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. So he quotes from the book of Joel. How's one way we know it's authentic? Because God's already said this was going to happen years ago. That authenticates it. Someone predicted this event would happen. That, that's a pretty good authentic, authentication. I think another one is you have hundreds and now even thousands of people who have witnessed this event. 
that Luke researched and, and got this information. Let me ask you this. If you were going to create a conspiracy, like a little religious conspiracy, and you wanted to say that something happened and try to convince other people that it was true, would you have a really big crowd of people that were there to find, see what really happened, or would you keep it to a very small number of people that you could control and get them to say whatever you wanted? Right? You would not have people a ton of people witnessing event. Nor would you have people who then scattered to the ends of the earth afterwards who could speak of the truth of event happening or not happening. That's what's happening here. You have people going everywhere. And they could have easily denied this event and say, no, that never happened. In fact, he even includes naysayers. <laughs> They're just drunk. Come on. Why would you do that if you were trying to write down a story that wasn't really true? You see, the story itself authenticates itself because you would never write it in this way if you were purporting something that wasn't true. God predicted it. The story itself authenticates it. It's consistent with God's work. Whenever God comes in a powerful way throughout the Bible, two things always happen. Judgment and salvation. Never fails. Judgment and salvation. God would judge his people Israel and he'd save a remnant to bring them through that. He'd judge foreigners who were in their land and he'd save the Israelites and he'd bring them back. He's doing the same thing right here. He judged his own son just days before this for our sin and now he's preparing to give a salvation like he's never seen, like we've never seen to all his people. He's judging Israel at this moment. And he's starting his church, a new people, to be his missionaries. It's consistent. It's why he did it that way. So how do we respond? The last verse tells us, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just two things I want you to see from this. I want to spend a little time leaning into this. First one is just this. If you're newer here or you're checking out Christianity, you're wondering about this whole Jesus person, there's a word in this passage for you. Believe. God's judgment is not to push people away. It's to prepare people for the beautiful, loving gracious, magnificent, holy, perfect kingdom that he is preparing for everyone who believes. Your sin is not bad enough to prevent him from saving you. I mean, Peter here, perfect example. Paul, who we write later, a murderer killed people. David, King David, an adulterer and a murderer. The only thing that can keep you from being in the presence of God for eternity is your rejection of Jesus Christ and what he's doing. Don't let that be an obstacle. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will begin a brand new life with him. If you're not ready for that, come and ask some questions. We're not going to push you into that. God will reveal that in time. But if he has revealed that, then believe and trust him and take that next step with him.
The second thing is, for the rest of us here that are here that have maybe taken that step already, is, is it's really clear. Be a witness to others so they can believe. How are they going to hear if no one tells them about the good news of Jesus Christ? See, the season of waiting is over. Our command is not to go and wait for the Spirit. Our command is to go and make disciples. Jesus told his disciples before they, the Spirit came, go and wait. We're called to go and make. That's our command. That's the one he's given us. He said, when the Spirit comes, you will receive power to go and be my witnesses. You have everything you need to do that. See, this is the harvest. Jesus put this here. God put this here at Pentecost because it's the beginning of harvest. And if you know anything about farming, you know when harvest season comes, you get busy harvesting. It's what you do. If you've ever farmed, you know that. When I was teaching, I, I taught in a, a small agricultural community called Silverton just outside of, of Salem, Oregon. We lived there uh, that whole time, and, and by one of our best friends, his family was a farming family. He was the only one in his family that wasn't a full-time farmer. And so what I do in the summer, I started farming with them. I would go out and farm uh, on a combine. They give you a combine. If you don't know what a combine is, it's this huge machine that can scoop up crops of different kinds that have different attachments on the front. I happen to combine grass seed. Grass seed is one of the biggest crops there in that area. And so you'd scoop up this grass seed and it would shake off the, the straw and it would put the seed up in there. And so they stuck me in this combine and, and from 10 a.m. in the morning till 10 p.m. at night, I drove the combine. That combine was a $250,000 machine. Now that may not seem like a whole lot of money today, but just to give you some perspective, I think, I think we paid, what, $82,000 or something like that for our first home back at that time. So I was freaking out the first day I went out there. Like, I'm driving a machine that's worth three times the value of my house. I'm thinking, if I like wreck this thing, whew, I'm in big trouble. Like, I have to drive this down farm roads to get to the next field. They, they entrusted this machine with me to go and get, take this harvest in for them. But guess what? what? What do you think would have happened if, if Mr. Farmer, Mr. Roth was his name, if he saw me with the combine parked at Sonic sucking down Slurpees? I mean, this thing had air conditioning and it. it had a little radio in there, didn't have, you know, CDs or anything like that. But what do you think you would have done if I was parking that puppy at Sonic and just sipping on Slurpees? Like, what do you think you would have done if I was driving around? You know, it's way easier to drive the combine on fields that are already harvested because you had to drive at the perfect speed. You had to be monitoring whether the grass seed was coming off. It, was, it, it took a lot of attention. But if I found a field that was already harvested and just drove around in there, it would have been so easy. But what do you think he would have done if I did that? What do you think he would have done if I used that machine for anything other than what it was intended for? If he was a smart farmer, he would have fired me because every good farmer knows when the harvest becomes ripe, there is a limited amount of time to bring it in. And he would have never given me a $250,000 
machine. If I wasn't going to use it to get the work done. Guess what, church? The Spirit's value is infinitely greater than that combine. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He has given you that power to be a harvester, to bring the crop in. Look at Jesus. He was the ultimate witness to his father. What made Jesus such a great witness? It wasn't because he had all the things that this world and we often think you need to make you blessed and to make you a great witness. That's not what made him a great witness. Did he expect the Spirit to fill him and protect him so he could be comfortable, safe, and secure in his suburban neighborhood? I don't think he did. Did he think he was blessed because God had prospered his work and his business financially and filled his life with earthly pleasures and comforts? I don't think so. Instead, Jesus had a joy and a purpose anchored in the most satisfying person in the universe. His heart, his mind was so anchored to the person of his father that he couldn't help but be a witness. He had the greatest treasure, the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure anyone could want, and he could not help but tell others about his father because there was nothing and no one that he loved more. Psalm 1611 is a a psalm of David, but it's a prophetic psalm that really points towards Jesus. And, And in that verse in particular, it says, It says, in your presence, this is Jesus or David talking about the Father, in your presence, Father, there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We are called to be witnesses of that joy and of those pleasures. In fact, we can't help but be witnesses. We all are witnesses. Your problem, my problem, is not that I'm not a witness. We always witness. It's just what we do. We witness about what, and we witness about who is most important to us in our lives. It's just what we do. For some of us, it's our families. Like, we can't, talk, we can't stop talking about our families. Our families are the most important people and the most important things in our lives. For others, it's our accomplishments or our successes or our, our possessions or our fame or our beauty or our Instagram accounts or how many followers we have. It could even be our church and even our Bible studies. Like, we talk about the things that we love the most. We just do. But if it's anything other than Jesus himself, we're off course. And it doesn't mean any of those things are bad to talk about. It just means what is most important 
in our lives. You say, well, Chad, church or the Bible, that Pharisees talked about God's word all the time. And yet Jesus said, you search the scriptures and yet in them you fail to see me. Now, that's not to say that talking about any of those things are bad. It's just to say that when they become our ultimate or greatest love, we become adulterers. We become idolaters. You say, oh, well, Chad, come on. I mean, that's, that's a little bit much, isn't it? I mean, come on. Well, let, let me just put it another way to help us understand. Let's, let me talk to, say, you married folk. And if you're not married, maybe you relate into it, but the, a really important relationship in your life, okay? If you're, if you're married, and, and let's say your spouse has a love affair with their work. Nothing wrong with work, but let's say they have a love affair with their work or their hobbies, or, or there's all kinds of other things that they are just so enamored with. In fact, let's say you're walking around one day and you bump into someone that knows them from their work or their hobbies or whatever, and you just happen to bump into them and they, they know your spouse and they say, oh my goodness, yeah, your spouse does this and this and this, they, they do this. They can tell you all these things that your spouse loves, but guess what never comes up in their conversation? You, their spouse. Like they, don't, they didn't even know who you were. They didn't even know your name. Didn't even know that they were married. Interesting. Interesting how different we would feel about a situation like that when it pertains to ourselves than we would when it pertains to God. Now, right now, you might be feeling a, a, a little bit guilty. Maybe, maybe you feel really guilty. That's a little bit of why I did that. Because I want you to know you're in really good company. If you feel guilty right now, that's actually a good thing. Do you, do you realize who was writing these very words or saying these words that we're reading at? Peter. Do you know what Peter did like less than barely a month ago from this moment when he's standing up in front of everyone? Do you know what he did? Three times, three times he personally denied that he even knew who Jesus was. So if you're feeling guilty, as I can even feel guilty when I see this, then you're in great company because the very person who was the most denying of Jesus is now here proclaiming the goodness and greatness of who he is and what he's doing in this moment. See, I, I love Jesus. I'm your pastor. I'm, a, I'm a, a paid, professional, trained, spiritual leader. And yes, if I'm honest, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm too quick to talk about sports or about my family, or about my hobbies, or, or don't even get me started on cycling, or as my daughter would say, e-bikes. Kind of a new research habit of mine. There's lots of things in my flesh that I will talk about before I'll talk about Jesus. And I love Jesus. I think it's safe to say that most of the biggest decisions I've made in my life have been significantly influenced by him. Yet when I operate in my own power, in my own strength, I'm just as prone as anyone else to talk about everything else but Jesus. This event we see today was a game changer. 
Peter the denier became Peter the proclaimer. And God wants to do the exact same thing. And he will do the exact same thing in your life and in mine if we'll simply trust him. I need the filling of the Holy Spirit every single day. I need a a daily Pentecost to be the witness God called me to be. And, And it may mean I never leave your house without taking a moment to do that. In fact, that's one of the habits that's helped me more than anything in this world is that every day I never leave the house. There's exceptions, but the habit in general is I don't leave the house without having my own little mini Pentecost where I sit down with Jesus and I listen to him and I ask him to fill me and use me and prepare me for whatever the day might throw at me. Not to fix my circumstances, not to make life easier, but to say, use me for the harvest that you've called me and saved me for. I don't sit there because he didn't tell us as believers to go and wait. He told us to go and make. But I sit to remember, to remember the power that I have, remember the strength that I have, remember the gift that I have to go and do the work that he graciously has called you and me to do. And then when I leave, I go and make. I don't have to pray about whether I share the gospel with someone. I'm commanded to. Sometimes we use that as an excuse. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to pray about it. And I'm not saying don't pray. I'm just saying remember what you're commanded to do. Go and share it. You don't change people's hearts. God does. Just share. Start the conversation. Let me ask you this. Do you know anyone today who is looking for joy? Raise your hand. Do you know anyone today in these times that's looking for joy, but maybe is only experiencing anxiety or fear or discouragement or resentment and disappointment? Do you know anyone who is looking for joy but is only experiencing those things? You know the one who has eternal joy in his presence. You know him. Every single joy that this world is pursuing is just a tiny, teeny shadow of the joy that is in God for all of eternity. Every single one of them. You have, you possess, you know whom they need to know. Do you know anyone in this world that's seeking pleasure but only knows pain or loss or addiction or betrayal and resentment? You do. And you know the one in whose presence every pleasure is present. You have what they need. You know who they need. You don't need to fix them. You don't need to change their circumstances. You don't need to convince them. You just need to be a witness. God has made the power available for you to do so. It just requires the humility to regularly remind yourself of your purpose and your power. When you walk out those doors, you walk into the harvest field. God's not all that impressed 
by what you do when you're in here because this field is already harvested. This is where we come and have our little Pentecost and we remember who we're called to be. But the moment you walk out there, He is 100% for you. He has filled you with part of Himself to change your neighborhood, to change your home, to change your workplace, your schoolrooms, your city. I'm going to leave you with these two things. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now as we get ready to close and, and just have a moment here to reflect on this. But this is a unique season we're in for a church. And, and, and we're all focusing on evangelism and, and these goals as we go forward. But this year is kind of like a, a little corporate Pentecost for us as well because we've been called to, to pray a thousand hours of prayer corporately uh, in small groups individually and it's been awesome to see the hundreds of you who have signed up and said yes I'll spend a minute or two minutes every single day before I start my day praying for those people whom God has put on my heart we've had six to seven hundred different names of people that you're praying for come in that we get to pray for as a church and we pray for corporately and I want to challenge you if you haven't taken that step now join with your church that's what God has put us together here to do I believe he's going to honor this in ways that we have no idea yet today. Get into your small group and pray. Pray individually. Come corporately and pray with us. The second thing I want to challenge you with is this. The season of waiting, it's over. The apostles in this passage were commanded to go and wait. Our command as a church today is to go and make. Yes, pray. But then get busy making disciples. Find those people. Be part of it. Don't just pray and wait. It's harvest time and no one sits around waiting during the harvest. You eat your lunch while you're working. Church, we are in the harvest. God has called us and empowered us to be part of that. So as we close out here today, here's, here's what I want to ask you to do. The, the worship team is going to sing this really powerful little chorus over us. And then they're going to invite you in to sing it at some point. But, but at the beginning of it, I want it just to be your little Pentecost moment, for, the, for lack of a better term. That, that maybe you need to start with some repentance, like I needed to start with. And that's okay. It's a great way to start. Just acknowledge, Lord, I, I've not been stewarding the spirit that you've put in me. He loves to hear that. He's waiting to hear that from you. And just tell him what has gotten in the way of you being whom he's called you to be. Start with a little bit of that. And then ask him again to say, Lord, you filled your disciples then. You have placed your spirit in me now, but fill me now. Filling in the New Testament is something that goes on over and over and over again. And it, it happens when we submit ourselves to God's will. And just say, would you fill me again for this purpose, Lord? Take that moment now as they sing over you. And then they're going to invite you 
to come and sing and we're going to stand up and we're going to celebrate and we're going to rejoice in the fact that we are called and sent and empowered to be God's harvesters in the field. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for all the things you did to orchestrate putting together your word, all the ways in which uh, the world has tried to squelch it out, the different persecutions that have tried to kill it and put it away and, and thwart it, and yet it just continued to multiply more and more and more. Lord, there is no other book like this book. But Lord, it's not the book that's so great. It's the God that it talks about the God that we get to witness about, the God who, Lord, I've seen change so many people's lives. When I've just had the courage to tell them about you. Lord, I'm an example. I'd be a, a mess. Well, I'm still kind of a mess, but it'd be a worse mess if you hadn't come and changed my life. So Lord, forgive me first. I should know best of all what my purpose is. And yet, Lord, I can be as foolish as the next. So forgive me and fill me again for your purpose, for this harvest, for our city, for my home, for my neighborhood, for my friends. I want them to know you, Lord. All I gotta do is tell them. So use me, I'm willing. Use me, Lord. In your son's name I pray, amen.